And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it's Tuesday as we get this uh, holiday-shortened week um, underway. Of course, yesterday markets were closed in observance of President's Day. So absolutely nothing happened yesterday. So we pick up where we left off on Friday um, with markets down just a little bit. This morning, futures are pointing a bit lower. Uh, NASDAQ currently looking down to be about 93 points this morning. Uh, so we'll see. You know, This has been kind of an, uh, kind of an interesting rotation uh, over the last few days, we've kind of seen these you know, big cap names, right? The NVIDIA's, the Apple's, the Google's kind of lagging while some of the rest of the market's been playing catch-up. So we'll see if that's kind of the, the case that uh, we'll see today. Of course, you know, what we've seen previously and, and you know, as, as Mike and I and Nick and as we work in our portfolio, we have what's called Dow Days and NASDAQ Days. And so NASDAQ Days are days where the Magnificent Seven are leading. Dow Days are when we have everything else actually kind of picking up some slack. So we'll see if today is going to be another Dow Day or NASDAQ Day. Of course, a little bit too early uh, to talk about that just yet. We'll find out. Um, of course, uh, last week, the big news, of course, was CPI inflation. We talked about that. You know, again, just some anomalies there. On Friday, we saw the producer price index, same type of deal that we saw with CPI, some anomalies in that data that suggest that this little bit of inflation bump that we saw in uh, January is likely not going to remain that way. And so we'll see what happens as we get uh, kind of further into the month uh, and then start getting reports uh, for February as we get into March. So again, we'll, we'll see if some of this, there's a lot of angst over this, uh, you know, tick up in inflation last week. Again, I think it's fairly transitory, um, you know, but again, we'll, we'll see this with the data over the course of the next few weeks. Um, you know, one of the things that is, is going to be kind of becoming more important as we start to move towards summer is going to be the upcoming election. Um, lots of debates right now about, you know, where we are in terms of the political divide. And that political divide makes it much harder for the government to get bills passed. And importantly, we have debt ceiling issues. We've got debt issuance issues coming up. A lot of the treasury is going to have to roll over a lot of debt. We have a lot of debt that's maturing over the last few years. The treasury has been issuing a lot of very short-term debt. So we have this roll that comes on a much more frequent basis where we have to kind of roll over very big chunks of debt. So we're going to be dealing with that. And of course, at the same time, we've got this big budget deficit. We'll have to issue more debt to cover the spending. And this is going to, and, and with the division, and particularly going into an election, it's become much more challenging to pass more spending at this point to try to support economic activity. And that's the one thing that we may see here. And, and again, we are watching M2 very closely, which is the amount, and particularly looking at M2, which is the money supply, as it relates to the size of the economy. How much, how much money is actually sitting out there in terms of the economy? So we look at M2 as a percentage of GDP. That percentage is coming down. And there's a very high correlation between advances or declines in M2 as a percentage of GDP and actual economic activity. So the risk of slower economic activity continuing as we move forward is becoming a much bigger risk. 
and that's going to potentially weigh on the markets. Again, you know, this is all about earnings at this moment, and earnings are doing okay. We've seen earnings so far, the reports have been good. Walmart out reporting earnings this morning, beating estimates, so that's good. But that those earnings are only primarily being driven by technology. Again, if we take a look at the earnings, expected earnings growth for the S&P 500 and look at everybody but technology and really communications as well because of Meta and Google. So once you move out technology and communications, there's not a lot of expectations for earnings growth for the rest of the index. It's all being pulled up and supported by the technology communication companies, which are actually growing earnings and have larger net margins. So one of the questions we're going to have to deal with is as economic growth slows and as that money comes out of the system, which will lead to slower economic growth, what does that mean for earnings growth as we get later into this year? So that's going to be the big question. Lots of expectations right now for continued bullish advance through the end of the year. You know, uh, Goldman Sachs just raised their year-end target to 5,200. So again, lots of expectations that we're going to have a continued bull rally this year, but earnings are going to be the key. So we keep a close watch on that. Okay, let's talk about what you need to know before the bell this morning. Uh, markets did, you know, end down just a little bit on Friday, closed on Monday. Um, still holding well above now. Again, we came down last week after that CPI report, we came down hit right on the 20-day moving average. So just a, a, a good intraday correction. Market rallied back to previous all-time highs and then kind of stuck there on Friday. So again, we had a, a negative week overall, but just barely. But outside of that, the market is still in a very bullish trend here. We, we are very close here to triggering a sell signal. So again, you know, with the markets uh, being down at the open this morning, if we do have a negative day, we will likely actually cross into a, a, a MACD sell signal. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to have a big major correction. We've seen these kind of elevated sell signals before, and we can just kind of chop around up here for a bit. Now, eventually, we're going to get a bigger sell-off in the markets. Now, is that starting today? Who knows? But we're eventually going to get a bigger sell-off in the markets, kind of like we saw last summer where we get that 5 to 10% correction. We're getting set up for that. Again, if we go back to June, July last year, we had a very similar pattern, not as long, but we, we maintained this very elevated level of the MACD, which you know, allowed the markets to continue to kind of, uh, of grind higher, and eventually they gave up the ghost during the summer. But here we've had a very long stretch here with this market, very elevated MACD signal, markets maintaining very overbought levels. So again, at some point we'll, we'll create this sell, kind of sell signal that actually leads to a broader sell-off in the markets and we do get a bigger correction, uh, which will be a, a decent buying opportunity. Again, we've talked about this for a while, is that you know, use these, these very elevated levels in the market. This has been a very, very long advance. And eventually this is going to have some correction. This deviation between the moving averages and the markets are going to resolve themselves at some point. So take a few profits here, you know, reduce your speculative risk. You know, interesting chart out this morning, retail investors piling into call options. That's very typical at a very late stage advance. So again, they generally pile into options at exactly the wrong time. So don't do that. Manage your risk here a bit, reduce your speculative activity, wait for a correction. And again, we're going to have one. It's just a function of time till we get there. We'll have a 5 to 10% correction sometime this year. And that'll be a better opportunity to, to put the capital to work, 
be a little bit more speculative. Now, it doesn't mean get out of the market entirely here. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, you know, rebalance your risk, reduce your speculative activity, be more, a little bit more defensive, and then wait for an opportunity to get more speculative again later this year. So again, that's just what you need to know before the bell this morning. But we'll come back and we're going to talk a little bit about today's article on the website, which is on the website right now, realinvestmentadvice.com, talking about these all-time highs. I'm getting lots of emails from people, very concerned. It's like, oh, you know, ranking all-time highs, that means a crash is coming. Don't fear all-time highs, but just understand them. And so we'll go through that in a little bit more detail when we come back from the break. Um, and we'll kind of get in that article. I've got some, some charts and graphs to show you, but we'll go through the whole psychology and we'll talk about valuations a bit and what this all means. So don't go away. That's all coming up on this morning's edition of The Real Investment Show. Be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So welcome back to the show this morning. Of course, it's Tuesday as uh, we get this week underway. Uh, lots of earnings out this morning. Diamondback Energy, uh, Caesars Entertainment, Home Depot, KBR, Medtronic, Palo Alto Networks, Teladoc, Toll Brothers, and Walmart. Uh, Walmart's already reported this earning this morning uh, earnings beating estimates, so we'll see how that stock trades today. Um, so, all-time highs. Lots of headlines recently about markets hitting all-time highs, and it's very bullish, right? And when you hit all-time highs, you're going to get more all-time highs because everybody's got the fear of missing out. But it also engenders a lot of concern that as markets are hitting all-time highs, that you know this is kind of the precursor to a big correction, right? And so I get lots of emails uh, recently. You know, you know, Lance, what do you think about these all-time highs? We just keep hitting all-time highs. It's gonna, you know, it's gonna end here, right? And you know, there's there's some certain, you know, there's certainly some, you know reasons to be concerned when markets are doing kind of this very strong momentum driven advance but you know it's just something that we need to understand that in the short term it's psychology that moves markets right so i wrote an article to 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 kind of address this it's on the website so if you have friends or family that are you know concerned about it or whatever feel free to send it to them but it's on the website now it's called don't fear all-time highs and I thought I'd go through a few of the charts because we kind of address kind of the questions that I've been getting, you know, whether it relates to valuations or a variety of other things. And so, you know, first of all, just, you know, when you look at the market, yes, we're hitting all-time highs, right? Just, you know, we, we have, you know, finally gotten back to making money after the peak of the market in January of 2022. So I have this really cool chart of this, if Brent would show it, but there it is. <laughs> <laughs> He's asleep at the will this morning. Not enough coffee. Uh, but anyway, so finally, after two years, you know, we're we're finally making money in the market. And this, and then this is good, right? And and so people should be happy. But this breakout to all time highs has now gotten everybody into this 
this mode of, oh my gosh, I don't want to miss out. If the market's going to keep coming go, going up, I've got to get back in. Because remember, it wasn't just so long ago in October, November, December, January, February, March of April 2022, 2023, that this was all a bear market rally and the rally off the bottom was going to, to fail and we were going to go back to new lows and we were going to have a recession and all these type of things. And yet, despite all of that, the markets are making all-time highs, right? And so now everybody that had that very bearish sentiment over the last couple of years are now going, oh my gosh, I'm missing out. I got to get back into equities. You know, I, I listen to all these people telling me to be in, you know, gold and cash and short-term T-bills or tips, and now I've got to get back into the market. So that just, that, that shift is driving momentum. And so in the short term, that's what's happening. Right. But, you know, if we look back long term, we can see a couple of things that are going on. So, let, you know, if we go back and look at a chart of the market going back to 1871 and we take a look at periods where markets were making all time highs, you can you can see periods where the market just keeps making all time highs. But again, it's not just straight up. It's punctuated by declines along the way, not bear markets, but you know reasonable pullbacks 10 15 20 percent where you had an opportunity to put capital to work and the markets would make all newer all-time highs but then there is the point that the last all-time high is made and you go through a very long period of declines and what differentiates those two points is valuations. And when you have peak valuations, normally you're going to see periods, longer-term periods, as those valuations are correcting, you're seeing longer-term periods of very low to negative returns. And that's just the function of valuations. But valuations are terrible for short-term investing. Now, what do valuations tell us? With absolute certainty... Valuations tell us what future returns are going to look like. So from current valuation levels, we know that future returns are going to be far less. And when I say future, over the next 10 years, the returns over the next 10 years are going to be far less than what the returns in the past 10 years have been. Of course, the last 10 years have been driven by a, a tremendous amount of monetary you know, liquidity, zero interest rates, all those type of things. And it's going to be very hard to replicate the last 10 years, which, by the way, we're running at a rate of return 50% higher than the long-term average. It'll be very hard to replicate that in the future. So even if we have lower rates of return, that's going to feel very disappointing relative to what the past 10 years were, were right, for most individuals. And remember, most individuals have never been through a bear market. We have a big bear market at some point next year, five years from now, whenever along that, along that course, if we have one of those 50% drawdown years at some point, that's going to make returns even lower. But we should expect from where we are on valuations right now that forward returns are going to be substantially lower. But again, that has nothing to do with short-term. Valuations are terrible short-term predictors of the markets. And, you know, if the last few years haven't taught you that, I don't know what will. But, 
despite high valuations, markets are doing fine. And right now, as markets are, are rising, that bullish sentiment, that bullish FOMO, that fear of missing out is getting very elevated. And, and we're reaching points of that bullish sentiment that have typically been associated with at least short-term market peaks. And not just bullish sentiment, we also see the same thing in just overall technical indicators. We run in our uh, weekly newsletter on the website. So if you go to realinvestmentadvice.com and subscribe to the weekly newsletter, we email it to you. But at the, in, in the bottom of that newsletter, we have lots of charts and graphs on statistics of the market, risk-reward ranges, those type of things. One of the charts that we have is our technical gauge, which is a composite of 13 different technical indicators on a weekly basis. Now, those indicators run from 0 to 100 on this gauge. We're currently at 94.5. <laughs> so we are at one of the more elevated levels in market history. And previous such extreme levels have led to at least a 10% correction, if not a little bit more. Even during the rip and bull market since 2009, more extreme technical extensions have led to short-term corrections. And then markets went on higher from there. And that's the key point, right? So despite the fact that we have high valuations that tell us long-term returns will be lower in the short term, don't fear all-time highs. Look for corrections to buy those because those are going to be bought. Right. We're, we're in an environment right now, this this fear of missing out, the speculative nature, et cetera. And again, if we look back through history, you should expect a correction. In any given year, no matter how bullish the year is, you normally have a correction of some of some sort. And so those corrections on the median run about 10 percent. Sometimes they're more, sometimes they're less. So. Understand that we have a lot of bullish sentiment right now, a lot of momentum behind the markets. People are very aggressive about the markets right now. Doesn't mean you can't have a correction, but if you want to participate, these short-term pullbacks are opportunities to participate with the markets. Now, at some point, we have to realize that we will reach the point that the last high will be put in, and we won't know that right away. But if we look back through history again, let's go back to that long-term chart. And, and what I've done is I've highlighted these bull markets throughout history, and they can last a very long time. And this one's lasted a very long time. This bull market that we're in started in 2009. It's had a very strong bullish advance. We haven't broken that trend as of yet. And at some point, we will break that trend, and then we will know with certainty that we're in the next kind of secular bear market, period. But we're not there yet. And again, at some point, the last all-time high will be put in. But see, the problem for investors is trying to say, oh, well, is this the last all-time high? Is this the last one? Or is there more to come? Odds are there are more to come this year because of momentum, because of, of you know the Fed, all these type of things. But the most important thing we have to understand is that eventually the last all-time high will be put in. And look, we don't know when that's going to be. What we do know is that the current extension of the market from its long-term exponential growth trend 
is extremely deviated. That can't last forever. That deviation is of a record we have never seen before. That's, but that's what you get with $43 trillion worth of interventions is that type of, of speculative extension of the markets. Eventually, that will revert itself. Not today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, but eventually. So as investors, we just need to understand what those risks are. Don't fear all-time highs, right? Nothing, there's nothing to fear about the markets making all-time highs. That's just a function of momentum and psychology. What you need to be looking for, first of all, understand that all-time highs are a function of momentum and psychology, but then be looking for what changes that momentum and psychology from positive or bullish to bearish. That's when you'll know that the last all-time high was put into the market for a while. All right, be right back after the break. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com nothing sinks a marriage quicker than money issues if the valentine's day glow has faded promise you'll respect your lover's credit communicate about your money and share together our first candid coffee for 2024 five money habits of unhappy couples saturday february 24th richard rosso and danny ratliff will have money tips to help revive your financial harmony register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Five money habits of unhappy couples. Candid coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, employment because... I wrote an article on Friday, since we weren't here on Monday, we get to discuss it. So, but I wrote an article on Friday talking about employment and what's been happening with some of this employment data that's coming out. And it's very interesting because we've had this very strong run in employment data, yet we have a lot of people complaining about, you know, the economy, can't find work, you know, whatever it is. And so, you know, when we take a look at a lot of these BLS reports that are coming out, they say everything is great, but there's been a rash of articles in the Wall Street Journal, Business Insider, other places, talking about individuals who are graduating college can't find a job. I'll give you an example of one. This is from uh, Business Insider. Uh, New Yorker Loheni Santos publicly vented her frustration after her attempts to go door-to-door with her CV in hand, that's her resume, um, in hope of finally landing a job but was unsuccessful. It would appear that other young job seekers could relate to Lohani's struggles in the USA and Canada, who rank fifth out of seven when it comes to youth unemployment 
and third when it comes to total unemployment, according to World Bank data based on the International Labor Organization model for 2020. Jenna Starr stuck a blue post-it note to her monitor a few months ago after getting her MBA from Yale University last May. Get yourself a job, is what the blue sticky said. And it wasn't until last week when she received a long-awaited offer that she could finally take it down. For months, she had been one of a large number of 2023 MBA graduates whose job searches have collided with a slowdown in hiring for well-paid, white-collar positions. Her search for a job in sustainability began before graduation, and she applied for more than 100 openings since, including a field she used to work in nonprofit fundraising. So it's interesting, right? Now you can you can take a lot from these, you know, these stories, right? She was trying to get into nonprofit fundraising, which is a limited field. Uh, sustainability, you know, is not a widely used field at the moment. So there's certainly demand implications for that type of a role. So there's some things you think about, but but the broader picture is, and I've got a chart of this, is if we take a look at unemployment, right? Unemployment's at near historically low records. So why is why is anybody, particularly one with an MBA, having any trouble finding a job? Jobless claims are near record lows. So clearly, they're, you know, it's it's a personal issue, right? It's it's her problem that she can't find a job, wrong degree, wrong fields. I mean, we can certainly make a lot of implications on that, but overall, these aren't just single stories there's a lot of stories like this i'm seeing a lot on linkedin where people are saying you know i've sent out a thousand resumes can't get a job and if we take a look at some of the uh, some of the data what we see is there's actually a differential the unemployment rate for recent college graduates is about 4.4 percent versus 3.6 overall so there's certainly some truth to that story is that the unemployment rate for recent college graduates is higher than what the national average is. Of course, you know, we can also talk about, you know, kind of all the fiddling that goes around with the unemployment rate as well from a mathematical position. And we, and we know, right, we just anecdotally know that unemployment in the U.S. is actually substantially higher than what the official reports are. But... This was an interesting position because as I was doing this research on it, I started out to write this article just on employment, right? That's where where it started. But I was doing some research and I ran across some important comments from Jerome Powell. He was doing an interview on 60 Minutes and he was talking with Scott Pelley, and, and Scott Pelley said, why is immigration important? Now, here's the problem with the immigration story, right? We, we hear about what's happening along the southern border. We talk about illegal immigration. And now that Texas and Arizona and, you know, have, have secured their borders to a degree, you know, these immigrants are now doing kind of a hook end. And I saw, a, you know, a story yesterday where these immigrants are now going over the mountains and into California because there's no border protection on California, no border patrol either, right? So they're just they're just going into California. So the problem with all these immigration stories is we don't segregate immigration between legal and illegal. And it was interesting too because they were interviewing these migrants in California and just asked them where they're from. 
these aren't just from South America. The vast majority of them, uh, like, for instance, Chinese immigration is uh, illegal. Chinese immigration is up 4000 percent over the course of the last year. These people were from Turkey, Syria, uh, you know, all all over. Not that, you know, outside of just South America. So so immigrants are coming into the U.S. illegally from all over the world, not just South America. Right. But we never we never differentiate between legal and illegal immigration. So when we talk about immigration, we never we never segregate the two. But Scott Pelley asked Jerome Powell, he says, well, what was important about about immigration? Powell said the quiet part out loud. I'll quote. This is his quote. Because, you know, immigrants come in and they tend to work at a rate that is at or above that for non-immigrants. Immigrants who come to the country tend to be in the workforce at a slightly higher level than Native Americans. But that's primarily because of the age difference. They tend to skew younger. The key line there is that they work at a higher rate. Not a higher rate of pay, a higher rate of labor. And this reminded me of an of a interview that was done with Greg Hayes of Carrier Industries. So I've talked about this on the show before, but and we've written articles on this. But back when Trump was elected, he made uh, President Trump made a big push to reshore a lot of offshore manufacturing, right? I want to bring manufacturing back to America. It's great. So a lot of companies jumped on that bandwagon to keep in the good graces of government. Carrier Industries was one of those, and he was interviewed uh, by uh, the television. It was CNBC. That was actually an interview with Jim Cramer talking about Carrier Industries. And they were talking about the fact that Carrier Industries was one of the first companies to step up and say, hey, we're going to relocate this plant from Mexico back to the U.S. We're going to move it to Indiana. And so when Jim Cramer was asking, he was like, you know, tell me about this. Why, why are you doing this? He says, well, you know, our parent company is United Technologies, now Raytheon Technologies. They have hundreds of billions of dollars of contracts with the government. We want to keep the government happy, right? We want to keep President Trump happy. So we're going to move this plant from Mexico back to Indiana. Now, they were getting all kinds of tax cuts and tax breaks and, uh, you know, employment credits, everything else in Indiana to get, to, to get that business from Mexico. But here was the key statement from Greg Hayes. He was asked, so what's good about Mexico? He says, what's good about Mexico? He says, we have a very talented workforce in Mexico. Wages are obviously significantly lower, about 80% lower on average. But absenteeism runs about 1%. Turnover runs at 2%. Very, very dedicated workforce, which is much higher versus America. And I think that's just part of these. These jobs, again, are not jobs on an assembly line that uh, sorry. These are not jobs on an assembly line that Americans really find all that attractive over the long term. But those in Mexico will do it and they will do it on a very dedicated basis. So that's why companies manufacture. It's the same thing in Taiwan in Korea, in Vietnam, in China. These are very dedicated workforces that don't complain. They show up on time. 
They don't call in sick. They get paid two dollars an hour. And and yeah, we can we can make all of the claims about you know slave labor and other countries, but these other countries work very cheap. They don't require four hundred one k plans and healthcare benefits and paid time off and six time off and parental leave and maternity leave and all these other things that U.S. workers want. They don't they don't want fifteen dollar hour minimum wages. And the reason this is important, and this is why companies offshore labor, and this has been an ongoing process for a long time. And in fact, if you take a look at corporate profits to wages, you can see when that began to actually take off. It started in the 90s, and it's been accelerating ever since the dot-com crisis, because ever since the dot-com crisis, we are wanting more and more and more at less and less and less cost in the U.S. We, we want low inflation, so we export inflation, which is wages, to import deflation, which is cheap goods and services. And that boosts the profit margins for Wall Street. Because labor is the highest cost for any business. Ask any business owner, what's your highest cost? Labor and benefits. Taxes are right behind that. <laughs> but labor is right up there. So the important part about this is that, and this was the point that Jerome Powell was making about immigration, you take a look at employment. So why are U.S. citizens having such a tough time finding a job? And that's because ever since 2020 in particular, foreign-born labor has outplaced native-born workers. They work cheaper, they're more dedicated, they show up on time, and they help companies offset these higher input costs by hiring cheaper labor. We'll come back and finish up this conversation on the other side of the break. Don't go away. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, just finishing this uh, conversation up about employment, and again, it's always such a tenuous conversation because there's obviously a lot of support for immigration we see it all around the country and as i will talk about in a second we have to have immigration right so there's just a a problem that we have to fill but before we get there you know i was just talking about the fact that we have this this foreign-born workers are displacing native-born workers in the country right now because they will work cheaper they'll work longer hours etc uh, and these are these are in job now. These are not white collar jobs we're talking about in a lot of cases, but they still take up a lot of jobs. So we've seen a lot of hiring of foreign born workers in place of native born workers, and this and this occurs in uh, obviously your lot of your lower end wage paying jobs, right? So restaurants, retail, uh, leisure, hospitality, those type of things, and of course those are also where the bulk 
of the employment has been done over the course of the last couple of years have been in those low wage paying jobs. That's where bulk of when you take a look at these job reports without fail, almost every one of them are primarily dominated by lower wage paying jobs. And that's where this split between native and, and foreign born workers is occurring. And, you know, the problem with that for native born Americans is that these jobs are the type of jobs that are the first jobs for a lot of individuals. They graduate high school, they go to work for fast food establishment, whatever is their first job, is their first place to get experience. And they're not getting that experience because they're getting displaced by foreign-born workers. But let's move it up the ladder. Let's talk about full-time employment. Because in order to sustain a family in America, you need a full-time job. It's very hard to do it on multiple part-time jobs, right? It's hardest to make ends meet. Full-time jobs gives you benefits, health care, all those type of things that you need for the family. So full-time employment is very important. So is that, are those jobs increasing? Not really. In fact, if we take a look at full-time employees relative to the working age population, that's actually declining over the last several reports. And normally when you see full-time employment declining relative to the population, that's normally pre-recessionary, especially at the rate that we're seeing this decline. But as noted, you know, this full-time employment has declined really since 2000. So we've had, we are creating in terms of the total working age population, fewer and fewer full-time jobs. And that started back in 2000. That goes back to this offshoring. It goes back to profitability for companies, et cetera. How do I increase my profitability? Well, I reduce the amount of full-time employment that I have. I automate, I do other things, I... Um, you know, bring in AI, whatever. And if we take a look at the debt, that's obviously an impact on the economy because the more debt you have, the less economic growth you have on average. And if we take a look at the five-year average growth rate in the economy, guess what? It peaked in 2000, along with full-time employment. It's been declining ever since, along with full-time employment, as debt has now exceeded 100% of debt to GDP. So slower rates of economic growth in the future suggest lower rates of employment for full-time workers. And the other problem that we have, of course, is the fertility rate in the U.S. So, so now I said I get to the fact that we have to have immigration. We have to have immigration because we have the lowest birth rate really since the 40s, since World War II. So we're simply not producing enough children. There's an interesting chart out this morning showing the, the number of teenage births. There was good news and bad news in that graphic. The birth rate for 15 to 19-year-olds has dropped significantly. So that's good news, right? Kids need to be kids. They don't need to be teenage moms. But now the, the, the skew of women having babies is now skewing to the 40 to 44 year range, year old range. So people are waiting till much later in life to have a child, which means they probably won't have multiple children. So all of this is skewing. And of course the, 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 the 25 to 35 to 40 year range, they're kind of in the me generation where they're focusing on themselves first and they don't want to have children. Right? So that birth rate is declining for that age bracket. So we're having fewer and fewer children, which means that in order to 
sustain economic activity, you've got to increase immigration. And this particularly becomes a problem when your 25 to 44-year-old working age workers are declining and your elderly workers are increasing in terms of population. So we've got fewer people paying into the Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid system, right? And more people taking out of it. And we just talked about last week that we're adding another $1.5 billion to house illegals. So we keep tapping into the social welfare system, but we have fewer and fewer workers paying into it. So, yes, we have to have immigration of some sort to offset the imbalance of what we have going on within the economy. And so this, this, this brings up, you know, a couple of issues. And, and one, of course, is the fact that in order to sustain what bit of economic activity we have and to try to keep things affordable for individuals, immigration and outsourcing of labor is going to become, can, can continue to be a major issue because we don't want to pay $5,000 for an iPhone. We don't want to pay $5,000 for a flat screen television. So we want, we want cheap products, right? We, we want to buy cheap stuff. Because we want all the stuff that we want. We just don't want to pay a lot for it. So in order to do that, we've got to import deflation, export inflation. The other way to, the other way to, to keep costs low is to automate. And there was a very interesting report by the Congressional Budget Office talking about this, talking about immigration. And they said the imbalance between input costs and selling price drives companies to aggressively seek options to reduce the highest cost of any business, labor. Here's what they said. Reductions in employment would initially be concentrated at firms where higher prices quickly reduce sales. So think about a fact that if I'm going to try to produce a television here in the States and my television's $5,000 and I can buy one at Walmart for $3.99 that comes from China, which one are you going to buy? So I'm not going to sell many TVs at $5,000. So I'm going to have to do reductions in employment in order to try to produce at a lower cost, right? Because whatever I hire has to be embedded in the cost of the good or service that I'm producing. Over a longer period, however, firms would replace low-wage workers with higher-wage workers, machines, and other substitutes. As employers pass on those costs to consumers, consumers purchase fewer goods and services. Inflation. Consequently, the employers produce fewer goods and services, profits. When the cost of employing low-wage workers rises, think about now all of a sudden in California they want to pay $20 an hour minimum wage, okay? Or they want to install $15 an hour minimum wage around the country, right? Okay, so when the cost of employing low-wage workers rises, the cost of investing in machines and technology goes down which is why there's such a chase for AI right now. So why do we have this problem? And, and, and this also explains why full-time employment has declined since 2000, despite the surge of, of the internet economy, robotics, artificial intelligence, all those type of things, because it displaced labor. That allows individuals that 
to do jobs where it used to take two or three people to do a job. Now one person can do it. That's why full-time employment has declined. It's also why wage growth fails to grow fast enough to sustain the cost of living for the average American. Because we suppress wages through technology. The technological developments increase productivity, reducing the need for additional labor. It's that simple. And what labor I do need, what do I need today more than anything else? I need Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, Grubhub drivers, DoorDash drivers, FedEx drivers, Amazon Prime drivers. That's what I need. I need a lot of those people. You've got a license and you can drive and deliver packages, goods, or services. I've got a part-time job for you. And you can work multiples of those. You can, you can drive for Uber, Lyft, and FedEx all in one day. But that doesn't create the economic prosperity that we're, we're wanting Right. And this is why we have to go back to talking about immigration from the function of merit based immigration to just freeform immigration. Open border immigration imports a lot of low wage, low skilled workers. What we need as an economy to grow is merit based immigration where people come with high levels of education, they come with skills, they come with investment capital. They come here and start a business. They hire labor. That's the type of immigration that you want to have. And you, you streamline the citizenship process for those individuals. You come here and start a business. You hire 10 employees within five years. You get your citizenship. You come to the States. You bring capital. You build businesses. You pay revenue. There's a pathway to citizenship very quickly very streamlined through that process. Now you're bringing in the immigration that leads to stronger economic output, stronger growth, and better economic prosperity for all. Anyway, that article, all the charts and graphs on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. All right, have a great day. We will see you back here tomorrow. Danny Ratliff joining me in the morning. We'll talk about the markets today, where we wind up, all that on tomorrow's edition of The Real Investment Show. Have a great day.